Chapter Seventeen of Weapons of Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carl Henning. Weapons of Mystery by Joseph Hawking. Chapter Seventeen. Using the Enemy's Weapons. Two months passed, and no tidings of Kaffar, at least none that were worthy of consideration. The detectives had done all that men could do. They had made every inquiry possible. They had set on foot dozens of schemes, but all in vain. Voltaire, who had been closely watched, was apparently living a quiet, harmless life, and was not, so far as could be seen, in communication with him. I had done all that I could do myself. I had followed in England every possible clue, all of which had ended in failure. Three months passed, still no reliable news. One detective fancied he had detected him in Constantinople. Another was equally certain he had, at the same time, seen him in Berlin. I became almost mad with despair. The first of December had come, and I was not a step nearer finding the man whose presence would free me from Voltaire's villainous charge. That which troubled me most was the fact that I did not know whether he were alive. Even if I did not kill him, perhaps Voltaire had got him out of the way so that he might fasten the guilt on me. What, after all, was the thought that maddened me? If he should be lying at the bottom of Drearwater Pond? There were only twenty-four days now, three weeks and three days, and I knew not what to do. If I failed... My love would marry the man who was worse than a fiend, while I, for whom she was to suffer this torture, was unable to help her. And yet I had tried. God alone knows how, but only to fail. Still, there were twenty-four days. But what were they? Kaffar, if he were alive, might be in Africa, Australia. No one knew where. I saw no hope. A week more slipped by. There were only seventeen days left now. I was sitting in my room, anxiously waiting for the Continental Mail and any telegrams which might arrive. I had heard the postman's knock, and in a minute more letters were brought in. Eagerly I opened those which came from the detectives and feverishly read them. Still in the dark, nothing discovered. That summed up the long reports they sent me. I read the other letters. There was nothing in them to help me. Still another week went by. Only ten days were wanting to Christmas Eve, and I knew no more of Kaffar's whereabouts than I did on the day when I defied Voltaire and started on my search. Again reports from the detectives came, and still no news. No doubt, by this, Voltaire was gloating over his victory, while I was nearly mad with despair. Only ten days! I must do something! It was my duty, at all hazards, to free Gertrude Forrest from Voltaire. That was plain. I could not find the Egyptian, and thus it was probable I had killed him, as had been said. What must I do? This and this only. I must go to Scotland Yard and relate to the authorities my whole story. I must tell them of Voltaire's influence over me, and that it was probable I had, while held under a mesmerous spell, killed the man I had been trying to find. This was all. It might bring this villain under suspicion, 
and, if so, it would hinder him from exacting the fulfillment of Gertrude Forrest's promise. It was at best but an uncertain venture, but it was all I could do. I owed it to the woman I loved. It was my duty to make this sacrifice. I would do it. I wasted no time. I put on my overcoat and walked to Scotland Yard. I put my hand upon the door of the room which I knew belonged to one of the officials to whom I determined to report my case. I thought of the words I should say when, Stop! I'm sure I heard that word, clear and distinct. Where it came from I knew not, but it was plain to me. An idea flashed into my mind. Mad, mad, I must have been, never to have thought of it before. Ten days, only ten days! but much might be done even yet. I rushed away and got into St. James Park, and there, in comparative quietness, I began to think. The clouds began to dispel, the difficulties began to move away. Surely I had hit upon a plan at last, a plan of which I should have thought at the outset. I walked on towards Westminster Abbey, still working out my newly conceived idea, and when there jumped into a cab, Yes, I remembered the address, for I had seen it only the day before, so I told the cabman to drive to the street, Chelsea. I was right. There on the door was the name of the man I had hoped to find, Professor von Verkau. I paid the cabman and knocked at the door with a beating heart. A sallow-faced girl opened the door and asked my business. Was Professor Verkau at home? Yes, he was at home, but would be engaged for the next quarter of an hour. After that, he could see me on business connected with his profession. I was accordingly ushered into a musty room which sadly wanted light and air. The quarter of an hour dragged slowly away, when the sallow-faced girl again appeared, saying that Professor von Verkau would be pleased to see me. I followed her into an apartment that was fitted up like a doctor's consulting room, here I found the man I had come to see. He was a little man, about five foot four inches high. He had, however, a big head, a prominent forehead, and keen gray eyes. He wore gold-rimmed spectacles and was evidently well-fed and on good terms with himself. "'You are a professor of mesmerism and clairvoyance, I believe?' I began. "'That is my profession,' said the little man." then I am in hopes that you may be able to help me in my difficulty. I shall be pleased to help you, he said, still stiffly. Can you, I went on, tell the whereabouts of a man whom I may describe to you? That is very vague, was the reply. Your description may be incorrect, or a hundred men might answer to it. I would promise nothing under such conditions. Perhaps I had better tell my story, I said. I think you had, said the little professor quietly. On the 2nd of January of the present year, I said, a man disappeared in the night from a place in Yorkshire. He is an Egyptian and easily distinguished. A great deal depends on finding him at once. Ever since May, endeavors have been made to track him, but without success. Perhaps he is dead, said the professor. Perhaps so, but even then, it is important to know. Can you help me find out his whereabouts? 
Undoubtedly I can, but I must have a good photograph of him. Have you one? I have not. Could you obtain one? I think not. But this man has been seen by many people. Could not someone you know, and who knows him, sketch a faithful likeness from memory? I do not know of anyone. Then I could not guarantee to find him. You see, I cannot work miracles. I can only work through certain laws which I have been fortunate enough to either to recognize or discover. But there must ever be some data upon which to go. And, you see, you give me none that is in the least satisfactory. Perhaps you can, I said, if I relate to you all the circumstances connected with what is, I think, a somewhat remarkable story. I had determined to tell this little man every circumstance which might lead to Kaffar's discovery, especially those which happened in Yorkshire. It seemed my only resource, and I felt that somehow something would come of it. I therefore briefly related what I have written in this story. "'The man who has mesmerized you is very clever,' said the professor quietly, when I had finished. "'It was very unfortunate for you that you should have matched yourself with such a one. His plot was well worked out in every respect. He only made a mistake in one thing. And that?' He thought it impossible that you should ever be freed from his power without his consent. Still, it was a well-planned affair. The story, the ghost, the quarrel, it was all well done. I failed to see what part the ghost had in the matter, I said. The professor smiled. No, he said. Well, I should not think it was a vital part of his plan, but it was helpful. He calculated upon the young lady's superstitious fancies. He knew what the particular form in which the ghost appeared pretended, and it fitted in with his scheme of murder. Evidently, he wanted the young lady to believe in your guilt, and thus give him greater chance of success. Ah, he is a clever man. But, I asked anxiously, can you tell me of Kaffar's whereabouts now? No, I cannot. That is, not today. When, then? I may not be able to do so at all. It all depends on one man. Who is he? Simon Slowden, I think you called him. Simon Slowden? How can he help us? Evidently, he is susceptible to mesmeric influences, and he knows the man you wish to find. But the difficulty lies here. Is he sufficiently susceptible? Is that the only hope? All I can see at present... I was going to suggest that you be thrown into a mesmeric sleep, but you could not be depended on. The experiences which you have had would make you very uncertain. Then your advice is? Send for this man at once. If he fails, well, I have another alternative. May I know what? No, not now. Answer me this. Do you think I killed Kafar the Egyptian? No, I do not. But your enemy intended you should. Why did I not, then? Because the Egyptian also possessed a mesmerist power and hindered you. At any rate, such is my opinion. I am not sure. And the little man looked very wise. Expect us early tomorrow morning, I said, and then went away to the nearest telegraph office with a lighter heart than I had known for many long months. The little professor had given me some hope. 
The matter was still enshrouded in mystery, but still I thought I had found a possible solution. "'Send Simon Slowden to me at once,' I telegraphed. "'Extremely important. Wire back immediately the time I may expect him.' Anxiously I waited for an answer. Although the message was flashed with lightning speed, it seemed a long time in coming. At length it came, and I read as follows. Slowden will come by train leaving Leeds, 1138. Meet him at St. Pancras. I immediately caught a cab and drove to Gower Street, and, on looking at my timetable, I found that the train mentioned in the telegram arrived in London at 5.15. This would do splendidly. I could get Simon to my room and give him some breakfast, and then, after a little rest, drive direct to the professor's. I need not say I was early at St. Pancras the following morning. I had scarcely slept through the night, and anxiously awaited the appearance of the train. It swept into the station, and in good time, and to my great relief and delight, I saw Simon appear on the platform, looking as stolid and imperturbable as ever. We were not long in reaching Gower Street, where Simon enjoyed a good breakfast, after which we drew up our chairs before the cheerful fire and began to talk. "'Did you have a good journey, Simon?' I asked. "'Slept like the seven sleepers of the Patriarch, sir, all the way from Leeds.' "'And you don't feel tired now?' "'Not a bit, Your Honor.' "'Then,' I said, "'I want to explain to you a few things that must have appeared strange.' Accordingly, I told him of Voltaire's influence over me, and what came out of it. "'Why, sir,' said Simon, when I had finished, "'that arrow villain must be worse nor a hinfidel. He must be the old Nick in the garret. And do you mean to say, sir, that that there air beautiful Miss Forrest, who I've put down for you, is going to get married to that air somnamblifying waxinating willin, if his dutiful mate ain't found before Christmas Eve?' Only nine days, Simon. But it mustn't be, Your Honor. So I say, Simon, and that's why I've sent for you. But I can't do nothing much, sir. All my wits have been waccinated away, and my blood is puddled-like, which have affected the working of my brains. And, you see, all your detective chaps have failed. But I shan't fail, if you help me. Help you, Mr. Blake. You know I will. "'Simon, you offered to be my friend now nearly a year ago. "'Aye, and this air is a lad as I'll stick to his offer, sir, "'and mighty proud to do so.' "'Well, then, I'm in hopes we shall succeed.' "'How, Your Honor?' "'By fighting Voltaire with his own weapons.' "'What waxinating?' "'By mesmerism and clairvoyance, Simon.' "'And who's the chap as have got to be waccinated, "'or mesmerized, as you call it? "'You, if you will, Simon.' "'Me, sir,' said Simon aghast. "'If you will.' "'Well, I said after that there willin' experimented on me in Yorkshire. "'I never would again, but if it's for you, sure, why, here goes. "'I'm pretty tough. But how's it to be done?' "'Then I told him of my interview with the professor, "'and how he had told me that only he, Simon, could give the necessary help. "'Let's off at once, Your Honor.' cried Simon. I'm willing for anything if you can get the hupper and off that air willin and his other self. Nine days, sir, only nine days. Let's get to the waccinator. 
I'd rather have smallpox a dozen times than you should be knocked overboard by such as he. I was nothing loath, and so, although it was still early, we were soon in a cab on our way to the professor's. On arriving, we were immediately shown in, and the little man soon made his appearance. "'Ah, you've brought him,' said he. "'I'm glad to see you so prompt. Would you mind taking this chair, my friend?' To Simon. "'That's it. Thank you. You've been travelling all night, and are a little tired, I expect, no?' "'Well, it's well to be strong and able to bear fatigue. There, look at me. Ah, that's it.' With that he put his fingers on Simon's forehead, and my humble friend was unconscious of what was going on around him. He's very susceptible, but I am afraid he has not been under this influence a sufficient number of times for his vision to be clear. Still, we will try. Simon! That's me, said Simon sleepily. Do you see Kafar, the Egyptian? He looked around as if in doubt. His eyes had a vacant look about them, and yet there seemed a certain amount of intelligence displayed. At any rate, it seemed so to me. "'I see lots of people, all dim-like,' said Simon slowly. "'But I can't tell no faces. They all seem to be covered with a kind of mist.' "'Look again,' said the professor. "'You can see more clearly now.' Simon peered again and again, and then said, "'Yes, I can see him.' But he looks all strange. He's a shaved off his whiskers, and have got a sore red cap like a basin on his head. My heart gave a great bound. Kafar was not dead. Thank God for that. Where is he? I'm trying to see, but I can't. Everything is misty. There's a black fog a-coming up. Wait a few minutes, said the professor, and then we'll try him again. Presently he spoke again. Now he said. What do you see? But Simon did not reply. He appeared in a deep sleep. I thought as much, said the little man. His nature has not been sufficiently prepared for such work. I suppose you had breakfast before you came here? I assured him that Simon had breakfasted on kidneys and bacon, after which he had made a considerable inroads into a cold chicken, with perchance half a pound of cold ham to keep it company besides which he had taken three large breakfast cups of chocolate. Ah, that explains somewhat. Still, I think we have done a fair morning's work. We have seen that our man is alive. But do you think there is any hope of finding him? I am sure there is. Only be patient. But what must I do? Well, take this man to see some of the sights of London until three o'clock. Then come home to dinner. After dinner he'll be sleepy. Let him sleep if he will, until nine o'clock, then bring him here again, but let him have no supper until after I have done with him. Nine o'clock tonight? Why, do you know, that takes away another day. There will only want eight clear days till Christmas Eve. I can't help that, sir, said the little professor testily. You should have come before, but that is the way, a science which is really the queen of sciences, is disregarded. Only one here and there come to us, and then we are treated as no other scientific man would be treated. Never mind, our day will come. One day all the sciences shall bow the knee to us, for we are the real interpreters of the mysteries of nature. I apologized for my impatience, 
which he gravely accepted, and then woke Simon from his sleep. "'Where am I?' cried Simon. "'Where have I been?' "'I can't tell,' said the professor. "'I wish I could, for then our work would be accomplished.' "'Have you been a-waccinating me?' said Simon. The little man looked to me for explanation. "'He calls everything mysterious by that name,' I said. "'Cause,' continued Simon, "'I thought as how you waccinators or mesmerists made passes, as they call them, and waved your hands about, and like that.' "'Did that Mr. Voltaire, I think you call him, make passes?' asked the professor. He, said Simon, he ain't no ordinary man. He's got dealings with old Nicky, have. He didn't come near me, nor touch me, and I was sleeping afore I could think of my grandmother. Just so. He is no ordinary man. He's a real student of psychology, he is. He's gone beyond the elements of our profession. I despise the foolish things which these quacks of mesmerism make billy people do in order to please a gaping-mouthed audience. It is true I call myself a professor of mesmerism and clairvoyance, but it would be more correct to call me a practical psychologist. You'll attend to my wishes with regard to our friend, won't you? Good morning. I will not try to describe how I passed the day. It would be worrisome to the reader to tell him how often I looked at my watch and thought of the precious hours that were flying. Neither will I speak of my hopes and fears with regard to this idea of finding Kaffar's whereabouts by means of clairvoyance. Suffice it to say, I was in a state of feverish anxiety when we drove up to the professor's door that night, about half-past nine. We did not wait a minute before operations were commenced. Simon was again in a mesmeric sleep or whatever the reader may be pleased to call it, in a few seconds after he had sat down. Von Verkau began by asking the same question he had asked in the morning. Do you see Kaffar the Egyptian? I waited in breathless silence for the answer. Simon heaved a deep sigh and peered warily around, while the professor kept his eyes steadily upon him. Do you see Kaffar the Egyptian? repeated he. Yes. I see him, said Simon at length. Where? That's what I'm trying to find out, said Simon. The place is strange. The people talk in a strange tongue. I can't make him out. What do you see now? said the professor, touching his forehead. Oh, uh, I see now, said Simon. It's a railway station, and I see that air will in there, just as cunning as ever. He's a-getting in the train, he is. Can you see the name of the station? No, I can't. It's a biggish place, it is, and I can't see no name. Stay a minute, though. I see now. Well, what's the name? It's a name as I never see or heard tell on before. B, O, L, O. Ah, that's it. Bologna, that's it. It's a queer name, though, ain't it? Well, what now? Why, he's in the train, and it's started, it is. Do you know where he's going? No. But he has a ticket. Can't you see it? Of course I can't. It's in his pocket, and I can't see through the cloth, I can't. And what's he doing now? Why, 
He's in for making himself comfortable, he is. He's got a pillar, and he's stretching himself on the seat and laying his head on the pillar. There, he's closed his eyes. He's off to sleep. The professor turned to me. I'm afraid we can do no more tonight, he said. Evidently he is on a journey, and we must wait until he arrives at his destination. But can't Slowden remain as he is and watch him? The thing would be at once cruel and preposterous, sir. No, you must come again in the morning, then. Perchance he will have finished his journey. And accordingly he proceeded to wake Simon. After all, it did not matter so much. It was now ten o'clock, and I could do nothing that night, in any case. I do not know, but that I am glad that things are as they are, continued the professor. This second sleep will enable him to see more clearly to-morrow. Meanwhile, consider yourself fortunate. If the Egyptian stops anywhere in Italy, it will be possible for you to reach him and bring him back within the time you mention. Take heart, my friend. Goodbye for the time. I shall expect you early tomorrow. No sooner were we in the street than Simon began to ask me what he had told me, for I found that he was entirely ignorant of the things he had said. Who'd have thought it, he said amusingly, when I told him. Who'd have thought as how I should assist in a waxinating business like this air? Tell you, your honor, I shall believe in ghosts and spirits again soon. Fancy me as seeing things in Italy and telling to you without knowing anything about it. Well, but twill be grand if we can find him, your honor, won't it then? I spent a sleepless night harassed by a thousand doubts and fears. There, in the quiet of my room, all this mesmerism and clairvoyance seemed only so much hocus-pocus, which no sensible and well-educated man should have anything to do with. Still, it was my only hope, and it only wanted eight days till Christmas Eve. Only one little week and a day. That was all. And then, if I did not produce Kaffar, all was lost. It would be no use to go to Miss Forrest's house in Kensington and tell her that Simon Slowden had, while in a mesmeric sleep, seen Kaffar in Italy. No, no, that would never do. I must produce him. Nothing else would suffice. We were early at the professor's the following morning and found him waiting and almost as anxious as we were. Again, Simon submitted to the influence of the little man and soon answered, his questions far more readily than he had hitherto done. Did he see Kaffar? Yes, was the reply. Where is he now? He was in a beautiful town. The houses were white, the streets were white, the town was full of squares, and in these squares were many statues. Such was Simon's information. Do you know what country the town is in? No, said Simon, shaking his head. Could you not by any means find out? There's a railway station in the town. Can you not see the name there? Yes, there's a railway station, a fine one. Ah, I see the name now. T-O-R-I-N-O. Torino, that's it. Torino, I cried. Turin, that's a town in Italy, some distance behind the French border. The professor beckoned me to be quiet. Kaffar is at Torino, is he? said the professor. That's it, yes. What is he doing? Talking with a man who keeps in a hotel. What does he say? 
It's in a foreign language, and I can't tell. Can you repeat what he said? It sounded like but I can't make out what it means. The professor turned to me. He's speaking French. I did not know Kafar knew French. Perhaps he's learned it lately. The words mean that he will stay there for some days. Can you describe the street in which this hotel is? Continued von Verkau. Simon began to describe, but we could make nothing of it. We can't understand, replied the professor. Can you draw a sketch of the road to it from the railway station? And he put a piece of paper and pencil in Simon's hand. Without hesitating, Simon drew a sketch, a facsimile of which is given on the opposite page. I had been in Turin and remembered some of the places the sketch indicated. It might be far from perfect, but it was sufficient for me. It would be child's play to find Kafar there. That will do, I said to the professor. I'll start at once. Thank you so much. Ah, that will do, will it? He said with a smile. Then I'll wake up this man. Simon woke up as usual, rubbing his eyes, and asked whether any good had been done. Everything's been done, cried I. Come, Professor, allow me to write you a check. How much shall it be? Not a penny until your work is accomplished, replied the little man with dignity. That is not fair, I said. I don't know what may happen, and you must not be defrauded. Anyhow, here's something on account, and I put a twenty-pound note in his hand. He smiled as he looked at it, while I took my hat and stated my intention to start for Turin at once. "'Begging your pardon,' said Simon, "'but this here vaccination business is awfully wearying, and I should like to—that is—' "'The very thing,' I replied, anticipating his request. "'You shall go with me.' Half an hour later we were at Gower Street, making preparations for our journey to Turin. Simon calm and collected, I feverish and excited. End of chapter 17